great privilege to me to uh, call Rick to come. Rick Pratt, our Director of Congregational Life, to preach. Uh, not only is he a fine preacher, but a dear friend. And uh, this will be a delight. Please come. Thanks, Bill. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is an amazing privilege that we have to come into your presence this morning as your people and how unique even this morning with one service that we have, um, two services combined and into one that we are all here this morning as your people. And we're grateful that you've called us and you have spoken to us. You've given us your word to teach us and to, to instruct us, to show us of our true condition and our need for you and We're glad that our eyes have been opened to see that. And yet each week, each day indeed, each moment, we are uh, dependent upon your work to to do that work in our lives. And so we come here this morning in a new way, in a fresh kind of way, to ask that you would speak to us, reveal our need. And not just reveal our need, but renew us and our commitment to you and provide for us um, that which we need, your sustenance, your power, your grace, your mercy, regardless of our circumstances. So we look to you this morning. Use your word and your spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. would uh, invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Uh, I'm going to be looking at two parables uh, this morning that Jesus tells in sequence. And then next week, if I'm right, I believe uh, Chad will be preaching on the third parable in this chapter. So just to give you a little bit of a heads up on on where we're going and so we're filling in here for a couple of weeks. Um, These first two, this whole chapter, I I was a part of doing some parable studies in a Bible study and God just continues to open my eyes and just teach me uh, just wonderful things about his salvation. So as we look at this passage this morning, these two parables of the lost, it reminds us what God has done for us. Verses 1 through 10 of Luke chapter 15. Um, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep... If he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner, who repents? Jesus uses these stories, these parables, these, these stories to talk about and to tell us and to give us a picture of the kingdom of God and, and indeed the heart of God here. What it is that God is concerned about, how it is that God operates. And so he tells the parable of the lost sheep, he tells the story, the parable of the lost coin, and then he goes on to tell the parable of the lost son or lost sons more appropriately. 
You know, being lost or lostness is, is really about a human condition. We all have lost things and we have sought to find them and been frustrated maybe in the process. And sometimes we have found them and sometimes we have not. Jesus appeals to something that's familiar to all of us. A number of years ago when my wife and I, our family, lived in Lincoln, Nebraska, we and some friends decided to take in one of the baseball games there, the Salt Dogs, and we went to one of the stadiums. And in the outfield stadium, there was uh, one of those um, play areas for kids. We had our kids there, and we were all kind of watching our kids. But there were, there were lots and lots of kids in that play area. And somehow our youngest somehow snuck away from us and got away from that. And all of a sudden, we realized at one point, Libby was not there. She was not in this area, and we were watching her, but she was gone. So anyway, as you can imagine, being in that setting in a stadium that was filled with people, immediately it was set into a a kind of a panic where we recruited as many people as we could find to, to go and to seek out Libby. Well, anyway, she had made her way down the main hallway, and she was out the the front gate. She was, we don't know where she was going. She doesn't know either. But thankfully, as she was leaving the, the stadium, uh, somebody found her. And it was an adult who noticed this little two-year-old who was all by herself and, and, and took her and, and found a security officer and placed her in the, the care of this person for that time period. Meanwhile, we're looking, and you can imagine what really was only a few minutes, which seemed like hours and hours until we found her, and Kelly ran into the security guard and there was Libby, and she was happy as a lark. You know, she had no idea what, was, what had gone on, and, and we couldn't explain it to her. But there she was, safe and sound. And in, in that account, and we, we've all probably had stories similar to those, sometimes those outcome like that. But in that case, what we have is one who was lost. We have those who took the initiative to find that which was lost, and that the restoring of the lost to back to its rightful position, we have great rejoicing. We have a great outcome of which there's a kind of celebration that goes on in that. And in these stories, we have the same levels of meaning. We have three truths. We have one who initiates to find that which is lost. We have one that is lost and then is ultimately found and restored. And then also we have kind of over the Throughout these parables, we have a celebration, a rejoicing that goes on at the lost being found. And I want to pull on each of these truths, and I hope as we see them, what will happen as we digest them, we will see the truth of God's work of salvation in our lives. And I hope that it doesn't just remain in its work in our lives, but we will see and be driven and motivated to be a part of the work of salvation that God is doing and seeking and saving those who are around us. Parables, as I've mentioned before, and if you've read, they really are are pictures for us of the kingdom, of the kingdom of God and in the heart of God. And we see in this how God operates and what his interests are, his seeking and saving interests in this. There's two levels of meaning that Jesus uses to communicate. The, The one familiar scene, a familiar setting for them, one they would have known, certainly would have lost something or have known somebody who was a shepherd to find a sheep or a coin. Um, And yet he wants to use this to communicate a spiritual truth, something that is profound and for them to understand and to really to grasp and get their hands around. And so we have this picture. The gospel writer Luke for us, a couple things that would be helpful for us. First of all, it's important to know that Luke is the only, that we know, the only Gentile writer, contributor of the New Testament. So as a non-Jew, as a Gentile, he's writing. And he has particular interests as he writes his gospel, his account of Christ. 
While all the Gospels will point to and and reveal that Christ has a heart for the sinner and spends time with them, Luke has a particular interest in demonstrating that and showing that Christ's heart is for the down and out, those who are are lowly, those who are of disrepute. And so we see that throughout his Gospel that Luke, as he writes, he finds Jesus, his concern for women, his concern for children, his concern for the poor. And in this particular case, and some others, we find that Jesus has a particular place in his heart for these tax collectors and those who are sinners, those who have no standing in and of themselves before God, those who are looked down upon and are despised. And so Luke has this kind of lens. And as we come to this passage in chapter 15, and Luke strings together the words of Jesus, these three parables for us, each one placing, having a different kind of aspect of lostness and what it looks like and indeed how that lost becomes found. And each one of these, we see the very heart of God in seeking and saving that which is lost. And so Luke has this interest. You might find as well um, the parable of the lost sheep in Matthew 18 as well. But here we find all three of these together pointing in the same similar direction. The context is important for us and immediately we see in verse 1 through 3 the setting in which Jesus is, is with sinners and tax collectors. It tells us that tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. They were spending time with him and we see that the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling at this. They were grumbling that Jesus would spend time to them, that he would draw them to himself, that he would, that he would eat with them. And so we find these two groups of people that are present as Jesus tells these parables. Tax collectors and sinners, you might be aware, uh, tax collectors were hated. They were hated primarily because they were Jews who worked for the Romans. And it wasn't just that they worked for the Romans, but their work in collecting taxes also involved a kind of um, something that would, that would harm their own fellow countrymen, their own brothers. They would take the way that they made their money was by raising their taxes, by raising the amount of money that was due, and they would they would collect their income by, by taking more than what they deserved, more than what was owed in their taxes. And, of course, they were hated for those, both of those reasons, because they worked for the Romans and because they made their living in stealing from their own. And so they were hated. And this idea, this, the category of sinners here is just a general kind of category of anyone who had no standing, anyone who's maybe their vocation or their livelihood caused them to be in a standing that would be in opposition to the law. So maybe they worked with some things that were dead or with animals, or maybe they worked with others who would be considered to be unclean. It wasn't necessarily that these people were immoral, although they might have been, but just that there was no place for them in the context of the, the Jewish leaders. There was no entry point for them. And so we see that Jesus draws them and he gathers them. He spends time with them. He is friends to them when the Jewish leaders would have nothing to do with them. And so that's one group of people. The other group of people, which is diametrically opposed to them, is the, are the Pharisees and the, and the scribes that are there. We find that they're close by. We find that they're grumbling at the result here that Jesus is spending time with these tax collectors and the sinners that are there. And what's important for us to see here is that their grumbling isn't just a one-time account. It's not one event that their grumbling is an ongoing event. And you can find throughout the book of Luke and certainly the Gospels that any time that Jesus would spend time with them that we have, we can find them grumbling. They did not like the fact that he, that he was spending time with them. 
me find my next page here. There we go. Um, and so Jesus tells him this parable into this setting. The parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. In verse 3 it says that so he tells them this. And, and he uses something that's very familiar to them. A familiar setting, right? One whose sheep and he says, wouldn't it make sense to you? If you had a hundred sheep and you lost one, that you would go after the one? Or wouldn't it make sense to you? Isn't it the most reasonable thing that you can imagine that if you had ten coins and you lost one, that you would go after the one coin that you would lost? So he uses something that's familiar with them to communicate this truth of God's desire to seek and to save the lost. What will be helpful for us here in just a minute as we, as we work through these, one, this, this idea of the coins and the woman who loses the, the, the one coin in the ten, a lot of the commentators see here not just ten random coins and she happens to lose one, but in the cultural kind of backdrop here that we find is that, that there is most likely that it wasn't just one coin, but it was one coin that was a part of a whole of ten coins, that perhaps it was kind of a piece of jewelry that had all ten coins strung together or a, or a head dress of some sort and there was a great value to the whole as well as to the parts but there's an understanding that all of them go together and so in finding the one coin was necessary for the value of the coin but also insofar as the value of that coin contributed to the value of the whole and so we will we'll touch on that in a moment but the the backdrop here is not just one coin but it was one coin that belonged in a particular way with the other ten as we ask the question, what is this parable? What is it that, that we are to learn and to gather from this? We see that God is the, is the God that seeks and, to say, and saves the lost. And these are familiar scenes for us, familiar certainly for them. But there's also particular significance of the sheep, of the lost sheep, as it relates to the Old Testament. One of the important passages in the Old Testament as it relates to the Jewish leaders of the day would have been Ezekiel 34. And we read through that in our call to worship this morning. And it's a whole scenario there where there's an indictment of the Jewish rulers of the day who did not do what they were called to do. They were not good shepherds. They did not seek and save. They did not go out to help. They did nothing to really to try to help or assist. But indeed, God indicts them in that situation there. But even more importantly, God at that point sets himself up as the shepherd to replace them. And even as Jesus here paints a picture of the shepherd who goes and finds the one sheep, we need to remember in the back of our minds of this imagery of the Old Testament where God himself says, I will be the shepherd to them and I will seek them and I will find them and I will bind them up and I will strengthen them and I will bring them back. And so as we look at this, the three things we want to pull out first is that there's a, the initiative, it's at the initiative of the owner that the lost is found. And indeed, in these two parables, you see, indeed, nothing's going to be found, nothing is going to be accomplished unless the owner sets his mind and his heart to go and to find the sheep. It's at his initiative, it's at his cost or her cost on behalf of the woman here who finds the coin if they're to find this. And Jesus makes it clear in these parables that it's at the owner's expense, it's his cost, and it's at his initiative that the lost will be found. The picture of God that we see here is one who takes the initiative to seek and to find. This picture, however, would have been foreign. It would have been unheard of to the Jewish leaders of the day. There's no place in their theology, there's no place in their mind for a God that would go after and seek the lost. Perhaps he would accept one that would come to him in some way. 
if they had a certain kind of standing or a certain kind of righteousness of their own, maybe he would accept them. But there's no place in their mind, no place in their theology for a God that accepts and seeks and draws even close to him those of such great, um, that were so disreputable as the tax collectors and sinners of the day. And so there's not a category. And so Jesus said, even as he tells this parable, he's beginning kind of to break down their categories and should break down ours as well of the kind of God that we see, the kind of God that seeks and finds, that seeks even the most lowly, those who have nothing in of themselves. In fact, we'll find that that's each and every one of us. There's not any one of us that is of any account in our standing before God, that this is the kind of God that we serve the kind of God that's depicted in this these two parables and indeed even in the third one that we have a couple of passages a couple of images that we have of Christ if you turn a couple chapters over into Luke chapter 19 we have the account of Jesus as he encounters indeed as he sets up this encounter with Zacchaeus you might know the story the first few verses here of chapter 19 is Jesus is going through and he he calls Zacchaeus down and he says I'm going to come and I have I'm going to eat at your house today you might know the song but as as he does this Zacchaeus, we see conversion take place in his heart and his, he begins to make restitution of all that he had extorted as he had taken from people. Jesus stands up at the end in verse 8 here. He says, uh, or verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Here we see Jesus taking the initiative to go after this tax collector and to bring salvation to him. So we have a picture there of the one, the, the God, the Savior that takes initiative. Another passage I'll just point towards, it's one of those that sticks in my mind. It's a, it's a picture in John chapter 4 when Jesus goes through Samaria to find the woman at the well. As he goes there specifically to seek her out, verse 4 of chapter 4, it gives us this little phrase, where John writes for us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And of course, we might be aware that no self-respecting Jew would ever set foot in Samaria. He would go around Samaria on his way from Judea to Galilee. But we see in this situation, Jesus had to go through Samaria, that his intentions were to go after this woman, that his initiative was to go and to seek and to find her and to save her. And so we see a God who takes the initiative to seek and to save in this passage. We don't just see a God that takes the initiative. We see a God that is successful in seeking and saving. Because we see in both of these parables that he tells, we see both the lost, the sheep, and the coin, both of them are found. That they're found and ultimately restored to their rightful position, to their rightful place. And uh, we see as well that the condition of lostness in this is one that is a dire situation. It's not just a benign one. It's not one that shouldn't some, that something it's something it's one that something needs to be done about and so we find that the condition here is is great it's grave if you're doing a word study of this you'll find the word lost in this and if you're reading through this it's used five different times in the passage that we just read that something is lost the sheep is lost the coin is lost sinners are lost and so lostness is a theme that pervades throughout this these two parables and into the third one that's there. The word itself in one 
construction means to be destroyed or to perish. But in the one that we have here, it means to be lost. And the idea here in all three of these parables is that something has happened to the relationship between the owner and the thing being owned. The case of the sheep and the shepherd, that there's an alienation now between that relationship. And certainly we can see that alienation between the son that was lost, the prodigal son, and the father in that in the case and so lostness has a picture of alienation that there's a brokenness of a kind of relationship and at the end there's a restoration of that alienation so bro- this lostness has a it's a picture for us it's important of a broken relationship but practically speaking in the context of the parable certainly of the sheep that if a sheep remains lost the inevitable outcome is that sheep will be destroyed the inevitable outcome is destruction and perish, that he will perish. And so if there's separation of the sheep from the shepherd, destruction is inevitable. And to stay lost is ultimately to perish. And so to stay in that condition of lostness is to be destroyed. And we see that what Jesus, as he paints this picture, that the shepherd needs to go after the sheep because he knows that being lost ultimately result in destruction of the sheep. And so this condition is not one that's benign, it's one that is grave and one that calls the shepherd to do something about it. And so this condition is important for us to see and it also helps us to see the vast importance that, it, it, that we find in the initiative of the owner. If this condition is so grave, then it's necessary that the owner take the initiative to do something about the condition of that one. Otherwise, destruction will be the outcome of the one. But as we think about this loss, this picture of the restoration, the loss being found, the loss being restored, there's a process that we can see of the shepherd going out and finding and seeking. He says that he seeks and he finds it until he finds it. The woman does the same thing, that she sweeps and she has a lamp and she begins to look diligently until she finds the lost. And we find that in each case, there's a great value placed on the one. That again, that the, it's the one sheep that the shepherd goes after. It's the one coin that the woman goes to find. It's the one sinner that repents that we find the eruption of rejoicing in heaven. That the emphasis and the great value is seen on the one such that the shepherd and the woman both go to seek and to find that. And such that God sees the value of the one that he goes to seek and to find and to bring back and to restore to himself that which is his. At the same time, we see that there's a great heart of the owner here. I don't know about you when you've lost something, but my attitude shifts pretty drastically when I've lost something. I'm usually grumbling under my breath if our dog gets out, if our cat gets out, or something like that. You know, you're walking around and you're going, you know, worthless cat or worthless dog, or, or, or maybe that's redundant, I don't know, oxymoron. But there's, there's a sense in which... Um, there, that, that your attitude shifts, but we don't find that kind of grumbling attitude of the shepherd. We don't see him saying, worthless sheep, what am I doing here? If you look at the, the, the picture that Jesus paints for us, it says he seeks it until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. There's a picture of the one that seeks and finds, not grumbling, not, you know, not, not wanting this, but wanting to find the sheep, understanding the condition of the sheep unless it's found. Rejoicing even as he finds it because he knows his work of finding it will save its life. 
And the work of God in our lives gives us the same picture. That the attitude of God's seeking and saving effort in our lives and the lives of those who are His is not a grumbling kind of thing. It's a rejoicing one as He is doing His work of saving. So we see that the attitude is not one of grumbling. It's one where the owner recognizes the great value of finding the lost sheep. And this value of finding it overshadows the labor and the cost involved. But in the picture of the sheep, we see another image here. Maybe you've seen pictures of this. We see that the, the shepherd takes the sheep and he places it. He picks it up, he finds it, and he places it on his shoulders. Places it over that as he returns and it's an important image for us not to miss, not to pass out, that the pass by, that the shepherd seeks and finds, and he rejoices in the finding of it, but there's something more he does as he restores the sheep in the right relationship, to a right relationship. We have an image here of a sheep that's, that's down, and, and the, path, and the uh, shepherd will pick him up and place it. And the question we need to ask is, why is it that the shepherd places this sheep on his shoulders? And we might say, you know, he's in a hurry, he's got to get back, he's got places to be and things to do, so he needs to hurry up and throw the sheep on his shoulders. He says, come on. And, and that might be the case, Right? But there's something more in this image, something more in this picture that we need to see more than just a lost sheep. Because there's a certain condition that comes from being lost. There's a certain kind of condition that gets worse that comes from the condition of being lost. That lostness brings about something more. That we might have a picture here of a sheep that's not just lost. We have a picture of a sheep that's broken. We have a sheep that is here that is in need of something more. He is hungry, he is tired, he is bewildered, he is disillusioned, he is weary and weak. He is not able even to stand up and to follow the shepherd back to its rightful place. We have a picture of restoration of the shepherd that comes and he finds it and he rejoices and recognizes that this sheep isn't even able to follow him. And so this shepherd picks the sheep up places it on his shoulder under his own power and his own strength, he returns the sheep to its rightful place, his own sheep. And so we have a picture here, a beautiful picture of restoration. And it reminds us of the words from Ezekiel chapter 34, where God himself says, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. It's not just about finding it. He finds it, but then he does even more. He goes a step further and he takes it and he places it by his own strength and restores its strength when it can't do what it needs to do on its own. And I hope for each of us, as we see this image, that we just don't walk away and and miss the power that for each and every one of us, that there's an image here of a shepherd than what he has done in our lives. Whether we have strayed far whether we've strayed near, the reality is that we have strayed. And the reality is that our ability even to follow Him is non-existent. That, that His power to pick us up and to place us on His shoulders is an image that we need to see in our own lives. That we need to begin to, to find ourselves there. To find that He has provided for us what we can't do for ourselves. And so we have an image of a God who takes the initiative to seek and to find, but not just in there. A God who ultimately restores us to Himself picks us up by His mercy and His grace, restores us relationship with Him and relationship to, if you will, His flock. So that the truths here we want to pull out, the initiation of the owner, His power and His strength, the great value of the one, the attitude as He seeks and finds, as well as the work that He does to restore the broken, 
uniqueness in each one of us. Restore that on, on the way as we as he restores that relationship. There's a third image I want to point to here. I think it's even more pronounced than these other ones. There's lostness that's here. There's a God that restores, but there's even more. There's great rejoicing that really reverberates throughout all of these parables. The third one as well with the, the lost son as he's found. But in these two, we see that the, it's the owner rejoicing. That the one who is rejoicing here, the primary one who celebrates... The one who enjoys this process and, and, and the outcome of it is the owner, as well as those who love the owner. And so we have in each of these cases, we have joy permeating the shepherd as he finds him. He rejoices the sheep with the sheep and returns and it says that he calls others to join with him. Rejoice with me for I have found my sheep, the sheep that was lost. And then Jesus makes the connection there as well. There's rejoicing. There's more rejoicing in heaven over the one that was found than the 99 who don't need to be found. And there's more to be done with that passage we won't touch on today. But the point is that God's heart is that the loss would be restored, that there's repentance, that the restoration of the one. And so there's joy there. There's joy as well as the woman finds her coin. And what she do? She calls in her friends and says, rejoice with me. And so we find that the owner is the one who's primarily rejoicing. The others participate and join in the joy that the owner has at accomplishing it's the, the person's, her task or his task in this, in this case. And so we see that, that God is the one that's rejoicing, that he is the one who's primarily rejoicing at his work of salvation, that he is the one that's, that's present here that's rejoicing, and that he calls in, if you will, a picture of the angels and all of heaven joining him in the celebration that's going on of his work of salvation. So these others join in. We see that God rejoices in the salvation of his own, that he enjoys that. He delights in that. That's what he wants. Ezekiel 18.23 gives us a, a little picture of God, a, an image that's, that's, that's sometimes difficult. If you turn with me to 18.23 of chapter of Ezekiel, 20, uh, Ezekiel 18. A verse that gives us an image of what God takes pleasure in and what he doesn't. 18.23, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that they should turn from his way and live. God tells us that he does not delight in destruction. He does not delight in the, in the punishment of the wicked, although he does and he will. It's a part of what he does and his holy character. But what he delights in is that those would turn, that those would be found, that those would be rescued, and that's what he enjoys. And referring back to the, the scene of Jesus at Zacchaeus and his house, when you see Zacchaeus standing up and making that statement of returning money to the ones he's stolen from and giving money to the poor, and Jesus making the statement that those that, that salvation has come to this house, it's important for us to see, even in that setting, especially in that setting, a divine smile on the face of Jesus as he enjoys and rejoices in the fact that this one that he has saved, that he has brought salvation to, and that Jesus in that case and in, in heaven as well rejoices in the salvation of the one as well as in the many. That the lost is found, that the sheep has been found, that the coin, but more importantly, that God's own is found. And there's great rejoicing that's a part of this scene. When he takes the initiative... 
one who seeks and saves and restores the lost. And at that, there's great rejoicing and celebration. Now, the question I want to ask, why celebrate? What is it that is exactly being celebrated in this case? And there's a couple things I want to pull out. I want to clarify something on the parable that's important for us as we translate the parable from a human setting into a divine setting. From a situation that we'd be familiar with. In the scenario of the shepherd and of the woman who finds the coin, we could build a case that the celebration was such that the outcome was uncertain. That in the search effort, they weren't sure exactly of what the outcome was going to be, of the state of the sheep or if she would indeed find the coin. But the Bible paints a different picture for us of God of this kind of search effort that he brings about. The picture that it gives to us is a God who knows the outcome, enters into the scenario, knows the outcome, and affects the outcome of the sheep being saved. We can't have a picture here. We don't have a picture in Scripture of a shepherd who wonders if indeed he will make it to the sheep in time. We don't have a picture in Scripture of a shepherd who wonders if indeed what the outcome will be or of the woman who wonders if she'll find the coin We have a picture of a shepherd who knows exactly what his sheep needs. He knows exactly where they are. He knows exactly how to find them. And he knows exactly how to restore them. And at the right time, he will do that. That's the shepherd that we serve. That's the good shepherd. Now, in our case, in a human setting, we wonder the outcome. But in God's scenario, there's no question as to the outcome of what what he will what will, what will take place there. It's ordained by him and affected by him. But why do we celebrate? If we know the outcome, he knows the outcome, what's the celebration about? Well, there's three different aspects of the celebration. First of all, we find joy in the benefit of the one. There's joy in the benefit of the one. That again, the emphasis on the one in each of these cases, the one is saved. And in salvation, as we understand what he has done for each one of us, for those who are his, who have been rescued by him, we find that the benefit is great. That indeed the reality is the same as being brought from death to life. It's the same as having our eyes open. It's the same as being lost and then ultimately being found. From being in a situation of being of perishing to be brought into a condition of complete and certain outcome of our relationship with Him. And so there's joy in the benefit of the One. The eternal salvation, the eternal restoration of the One. And I hope for each one of us this morning that there's a greatness that, by which we remember what God has done for each one of us. That as we think about that reality of being saved, of being brought from being lost to being found, that as we reminisce, as we consider that, that there's rejoicing that's a natural outgrowth of that, of recognizing what God has done for us. That we would rejoice certainly in what he's done in our lives and we would join in the rejoicing of others as they experience the same thing. That there's great joy in the benefit of having been found by him. There's great joy for us. And if we wonder about that joy, if that joy is gone, then we need to reflect again on indeed what God has done for each one of us. Because there's a relationship between the degree to which we remember and the way that we rejoice. And if we remember what he's done for us, it will bring about over the course of our lives an ongoing and increasing kind of rejoicing in what God has done in our lives. So there's joy at the benefit of the one and there's celebration at the benefit of the one. There's also a joy at the restoration of the one to the many. This story isn't just about one sheep or one coin or one person. 
This story is ultimately about the one being restored to the many. And because we not just have one pictured here, we have more than one. And God's interests are not just for the one, although they are for that. They're also for the many and for the one to be restored to the whole. There's a picture of completion here. Of the one to be brought back and be brought into the whole. We have a picture here of Christ coming and saving not just one, not just some, but the whole of those who are his. All of those who are entrusted to him, he will save. Not losing any of his own. And so the joy here is also the restoration of the one to the whole. The whole number being completed. You know, some of us might, we might think that 99 out of 100 sheep is doing pretty good, right? Maybe we think that ten, nine coins out of one out of ten is we're really doing pretty good there. But placed in the context of a family, nine kids, you have ten kids and you only have nine, you make, a, make back after vacation with nine kids, are you doing pretty good? You go, no, 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 that's not so good. Well, maybe, I don't know. But the picture of God's work is that it's complete. All those who are His will be saved. Not one will be lost. And so the restoration is about the one, the picture is the one, but also the picture of the one to the many, to the whole. And there's great joy there as the one is added to the whole. And this picture, this image again of the woman and the the headdress or the necklace that she has gives us an idea, right? It's not just about the value of the one coin. It's a value of this one coin as it relates to the whole of the necklace. When one is missing, it's incomplete. When one is missing, it's not the way it should be. Its value is diminished. But more than that, it is effaced, defaced. It is not the way it is supposed to be. It is incomplete. And so the restoration of the one to the many gives us a picture of completion. And in that, we see an even greater picture of God's salvation and his intentions of saving one, but then saving the whole. But as we look at these parables, there's another layer that we need to see of joy and celebration. As we look throughout Scripture, we find even beyond this, we find that there's joy in the salvation of the one and the one to the many. But at the higher level, we see that this joy and the celebration is at the result of the glory and the honor of the owner. That what's at stake here is the glory and the honor of the one who owns these. The one who has lost these is the one who finds them. The gospel of God's salvation is ultimately about His victory. It's about His kingdom. It's about the power of his, and His ability to save all those who are His. Not just 99% of them or 99.9% of them, but all of them. And so the gospel is about His name. It's about His victory. It's about His kingdom, His rule and reign, His ability to save and to ransom all those who are His and to make them and to keep them and cause them to be His. And his seeking and saving and restoring actions, God is glorified. He is honored and he is exalted. His name is vindicated and shown to be great in his salvation of not just the one or the one to the many. It's shown in the whole of what God does in his saving effort. And the greatest joy of all is for him. The celebration is ultimately about him as the owner, as the savior, as the rescuer, the one who did the work, who took the initiative. The one who sought after the one to complete the whole, it reflects him. It shows him to be great. It shows him to be able. And so we see this joy of the one and the many, as well as the joy and the celebration of the owner of these. Uh, There's a movie I want to use here as an example. I always kind of hesitate to use movies as an example, but there's a picture for us I want to kind of pull on. It's from the movie Apollo 13. I don't know. I assume that it's generally 
true in its accounts and facts of that, I don't know. You know the storyline of the three astronauts, the intention, the, the mission was to get to the moon as malfunction of the of the ship they were on. They had some problems. And so the, the mission of mission control there in Houston, Houston, we have a problem, you know, shifts from getting to them to the moon from to get, getting them home, to bringing them back home and rescuing them. And so we have an image there. The, the, the three astronauts wonder the outcome. Mission control, their goal is to bring them home and to get them home safely. But there's another layer there. It's interesting. And the movie kind of pulls on this when it, it, it uh, shows this. It demonstrates it. And the image is the name and the honor of the United States of America. And there's these conversations that go on kind of behind the scenes of, you know, to the guys in charge. They say, you know, if you fail at this, this makes us look really, really bad. We've never lost anybody. And if we lose somebody, it doesn't look so good. And so we have the name and the honor of the United States of America at stake as they present this picture in the movie, you remember the climax of the movie is really as they, they've done all this to get the, the men home, the three of them as they're coming, and they break, they come through this blackout period where they, they don't know if they've been successful or not, and there's these minutes they wait as they wait for the voice to come over the intercom, and they wonder if they're going to hear a voice or not, and the anticipation kind of builds in the story in the movie, and you wait to wonder, were they successful in their mission? And all of a sudden, the voice breaks on the, the intercom, and, and, and as you can imagine, if you've seen the story, the whole mission command there just erupts. And everybody in this incredible celebration. They were successful. And you see the joy that they have. We were successful in bringing these men home and bringing them back. It was the one, the joy of the benefit of the three that they were alive. But then there's this joy, the sense that we all had a part of this. We brought them home to bring them back to be a part of us. That we were a part of this whole scenario. But then you have this picture again at the higher level. That the name of the United States is honored. And if I can use that on a very finite kind of way. What we see of God's work in salvation. The outcome is not in question. But as he affects it. There is great joy for those who are saved. Because their destruction could have been real. And yet God's salvation is just an even more real than that, their imminent destruction. And so he saves them. At the same time as he restores them to the whole, that we have this great picture of God restoring the one to the many of his own being saved. But then finally, what we see in Scripture, that the greatest joy of all is God's. The greatest joy of him is rejoicing in his work, his effort of salvation, his work in bringing all those who are His to Himself. And His name being honored. His name being exalted at and seen in His work of salvation. And we have a picture of this celebration. If you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 gives us a little glimpse of this celebration of the one who saved. The one who ransomed. The one who is successful in His mission. And the praise and worship that's due him as a result of this. Verse 6 of chapter 5, Revelation. We have this scene in heaven that we get through John and this vision that he has. The picture of of the worship of God. In chapter 4, we have another worship scene of of God, of his creation of all things. And in chapter 5, we have a scene of, of the worship of God for his ransoming work, his saving work. In verse 6. 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden, golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We have to be a part of this. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain by your, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard and around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that was in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. We see the picture here of the celebration of heaven and heaven of the one who saved. It's a new song because it's a song of God's saving efforts because you were able by your blood, you ransomed people for God. That the one who saved was the great shepherd who came and laid his life down and ransomed, rescued, found the loss from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And the celebration is due him. There's the benefit of many that's in there, those who are saved. But the benefit and the glory and the rejoicing most is due to the one who has saved them. And so we see his work in that. That the greatest joy comes in the worship of God and the response to his ransoming work. So we see the one who came and took the initiative to save from a condition of lostness. We see that it's, that it's at his initiative that he comes to seek and to save and that he restores And then we see there's great rejoicing and celebration. However, I would miss something if I don't finish with this point. And I know it's right at noon and we're almost done. But the final point is to bring us back to the context that Jesus tells these parables for us. He paints this picture of salvation for us, certainly that we can enjoy what he has done for us. But even greater than that and more than that and beyond that to build upon what he's done on us in us is that our heart for those who don't know Christ would continue to grow and be warmed. That if we find in any one of us this kind of heart that the Pharisees had that looked down upon the lowly, that somehow thought that God only came for certain ones, then we miss the entire point of the parable. How is it that we respond to the world around us? How is it that we respond to the loss that are brought into our path? What is our heart? Do we grumble at them? Or do we care Are we reluctant to do anything? Do we despise them? Are we indifferent as we see the world around us? Do we go on just about our business, focused on our own things? Will we accept them only if they walk through the doors of our church? Or do we understand that God is a seeking and saving God? That He is one that goes after, that He is active in the process of saving. That our eyes and our heart... And our lives would somehow reflect the heart of this God that has sought and saved us and calls us and wants to and desires to involve us in his saving effort. 
As we remember what he's done for us, there should be a great joy that will flow out into the way that we live and reaching out to others. As we recognize that this salvation isn't just for us, it's for all those who are his. And for that reason, we take it out to others around us in our lives and our words and all that we do. And finally, we get to enjoy and be a part of that celebration in heaven. And how is it that we participate in heaven while we are on earth? We participate in that celebration by being active and sharing that message of those who have been saved and reaching out to those who are lost. And by participating in God's work here and his seeking and finding and rescuing efforts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess first and foremost that my heart and my mind is so often preoccupied with my own interests and my own things that I don't even think about those who don't know you. I don't even remember sometimes all that you've done for me or I take that for granted. I'm indifferent about that. Father, I confess that and I pray that me and we as your people would in a fresh way, see all that you've done for us, that our hearts would be warmed as we see the seeking and saving God. The one who has saved one and many is in the process of continuing to call all those who are yours to be yours. And you would involve us in that process today. Father, we are a needy people. We are broken, and there's many things physically and emotionally and relationally that go on in our congregation. And I pray for those, I think of Pat Johnson, Patricia Johnson this morning, Stephen's mother, and I pray that you would be with her even now in critical condition, that you would continue to heal her body and him. I think of others who are sick as well and and hurting and pray for Matt Westfall's mother um, and many others. Would you be with them and be present with them?